Hello, this is Father John Arthur Orr, Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is our 41st installment on Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body, the 133 talks given by Pope John Paul II between the years 1979 and 1984. We're indebted to Professor Michael Waldstein, whose edition we're using. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ says... You have heard that it was said, You should not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. For some time we have been trying to enter into the meaning of this statement, analyzing its single components to grasp the totality of the text better. When Christ speaks about the man who looks to desire He points not only to the dimension of the intentionality of looking, that is, of concupiscent knowledge, the psychological dimension, but he points also to the dimension of the intentionality of man's very existence. He shows in this way who the woman is at whom he looks to desire, or rather who she becomes for the man. Thus the intentionality of knowledge determines and defines the intentionality of existence itself. In the situation described by Christ, this dimension exists one-sidedly between the man who is a subject and the woman who has become an object. This does not mean, however, that this dimension is only one-sided. For the moment, we will not turn around the situation we analyzed, nor will we extend it to both parts, to both subjects. Let us dwell on the situation outlined by Christ, underlining that the act is purely interior, hidden in the heart, standing still on the threshold of the look. It is enough to point out that the woman, who due to personal subjectivity perennially exists for the man, expecting that for the same reason he also exists for her, is deprived of the meaning of her attraction as a person, so that this attraction, while belonging to the eternal feminine, has become a mere object for the man. That is, she begins to exist intentionally as an object for the possible satisfaction of the man's sexual urge that lies in his masculinity. Although the act is wholly interior, hidden in the heart, and expressed only by the look, a change subjectively one-sided in the very intentionality of existence takes place in him. If this were not the case, if the change were not so deep, the following words of the sentence would have no meaning, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. Concupiscence, communion of persons, versus urge of nature. This change in the intentionality of existence by which a certain woman begins to exist for a certain man, not as a subject of the call and of personal attraction, or as a subject of communion, but exclusively as an object for the possible satisfaction of sexual urge, comes to be in the heart to the degree in which it has come to be 
in the will. Cognitive intentionality as such does not yet mean enslavement of the heart. It is only when the intentional reduction explained above drags the will into its narrow horizon when it awakens in it a decision for a relation with another human being, in our case with the woman, according to the scale of values proper to concupiscence, it is only then that one can say that desire has gained mastery over the heart. It is only when concupiscence has gained mastery over the will that one can say it dominates the subjectivity of the person and stands at the basis of the will and of the possibility of choosing and deciding, by which, in virtue of self-decision or self-determination, the very way of existing in relation to another person is determined. It is then that the intentionality of such an existence acquires a full subjective dimension. Only then, that is, from this subjective moment and its subjective prolongation, is it possible to confirm what we read in Sirach, chapter 23, verses 17 through 22, about the man dominated by concupiscence, and what we read in even more eloquent descriptions in world literature, then we can speak of that more or less complete constraint, which we have called constraint of the body, and which brings with it the loss of the freedom of the gift, a freedom connatural with deep consciousness of the spousal meaning of the body, about which we have spoken in the preceding analyses. When we speak of desire as a transformation of the intentionality of a concrete existence, the example given of the man for whom, according to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, a certain woman becomes only the object for the satisfaction of the sexual urge that lies in his masculinity. We do not in the least call into question that urge as an objective dimension of human nature with the procreative finality that is proper to it. Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount in their entire broad context, are far from Manichaeanism, and the same holds also for the authentic Christian tradition. In this case, therefore, one cannot raise objections of this sort. What is at issue, instead, is the man and the woman's way of existing as persons, or rather this existing in a reciprocal for that can and must also on the basis of what can be defined as sexual urge, according to the objective dimension of human nature, serve the building up of the unity of communion in their reciprocal relations. Such, in fact, is the fundamental meaning proper to the reciprocal attraction of masculinity and femininity contained in the very reality of man's constitution as a person, body and sex at the same time. It does not correspond to the personal union or communion to which man and woman have been reciprocally called from the beginning. In fact, it is contrary to it. 
that one of the two persons should exist only as a subject of the satisfaction of sexual urge, and that the other should become exclusively the object for such satisfaction. Further, it does not correspond to this unity of communion. In fact, it is contrary to it, that both the man and the woman should mutually exist as objects for the satisfaction of sexual urge, and that each of them on his or her own part should only be a subject of such satisfaction. Such a reduction of the rich content of reciprocal and perennial attraction among human persons in their masculinity and femininity does not correspond to the nature of the attraction in question. Such a reduction, in fact, extinguishes the meaning proper to man and woman, a meaning that is personal and of communion, through which the man will unite with his wife and the two will be one flesh. Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. Concupiscence removes the intentional dimension of the reciprocal existence of man and woman from the personal perspectives of communion, which are proper to their perennial and reciprocal attraction, reducing this attraction and so to speak, driving it toward utilitarian dimensions in whose sphere of influence one human being makes use of another human being, using her only to satisfy his own urges. It seems that one can find precisely this content, charged with the inner human experience of many different times and environments in Christ's concise words in the Sermon on the Mount. At the same time, one can in no way lose sight of the meaning that this statement attributes to man's interiority, to the integral dimension of the heart, but as a dimension of the inner man. Here lies the very core of the transformation of ethos aimed at by Christ's words, according to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 8, words expressed with such great power and, at the same time, wonderful simplicity. And with these words, our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, concludes his 41st catechesis, Man and Woman, He Created Them, a Theology of the Body. And in order to better appreciate this 41st catechesis, it's good to review where we've been. We're in the first part of the Theology of the Body of John Paul II. The first part treats the words of Christ. Chapter 1, Christ appeals to the beginning. It was not that way in the beginning. Male and female, he created them. In the divine image, he created them. The communion of persons, the original innocence, the original justice. In chapter 2, where we are now, Christ appealing to the human heart. He whose sacred heart was pierced on Calvary's height for love of his bridegroom, Mother Church. Christ Jesus himself appeals to our hearts. As a man among men, whoever looks with desire, a disordered desire, whoever covets his neighbor's wife in his heart has already committed adultery in his heart. He appeals to our hearts to be pure of heart, that we might see God not only in the hereafter, but even in the here and now in our brothers and sisters made to the image of God no less than we are. When Christ the Lord appeals to the human heart, he does so in the Sermon on the Mount, and that is part of the light in which John Paul II made these reflections, and in which we should hear them and look at them. 
John Paul II is addressing the man of concupiscence, the fallen nature of the human race. Concupiscence is one of the consequences, the sad consequences of original sin, suffering, death, ignorance, and a tendency to do evil, a tendency to sin. And the technical term for that is concupiscence. There's a whole section, even before this, about the man of concupiscence. But here in this chapter 2, again he takes it up. This part, we're dealing with commandment and ethos. The commandments of God, the ethos, the spirit, the way we live, the way we think, the way we feel. The new ethos of the new law. Love of God, love of neighbor. Love of self as God would have us do. And two parts here concupiscence, reduction of a personal call, reduction not in the phenomenological way as a honing in on the reality, but a reduction as a lessening, as not appreciating the gift for what it is, the perennial call to communion, a call which has been from the beginning and which always will be, concupiscence, communion of persons versus urge of nature, we're called perennially to communion of persons, mirroring God in whose image we're made, God who is a communion of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The urge of nature is the urge of a fallen nature, although there is a wholesome aspect to the sexual urge, but this is rightly exercised in the sacrament of marriage, in that lifelong communion of persons, open to the generation and education of children, which is holy marriage between one man and one woman. This is the background. This is the overview of this 41st catechesis of Pope John Paul II, man and woman. He created them a theology of the body. To look at specific parts of this catechesis, it's helpful for us to see the common threads. Concupiscent knowledge is like looking to desire, the look to desire is the disordered look. There is a wholesome look to desire, which a husband has for his wife and which the wife has for her husband, but it respects the other as a person and not merely as an object for self-gratification, not even for mutual self-gratification. Concupiscent knowledge. Recall earlier Pope John Paul II explained the ancient term yada. Adam knew his wife, this is to say, to make love. Concupiscent knowledge, concupiscent union, coming together in a disordered fashion. This is the looking to desire which the Lord is not encouraging in the gospel. I say whoever looks at another with desire has already committed adultery, made her an adulteress in his heart. The Savior of mankind who knows us from the inside out is trying to redeem us from the inside out if we let him, if we let his word, his saving word, permeate our very being, the way we desire, the way we look upon one another. Then our knowledge will not be a disordered knowledge, a knowledge with a tendency to sin, but a knowledge of the truth which sets us free. Then our desire will be for the good of the other, the true good, not only considering the here and now, life of virtue, but even the reward of the hereafter of a life well lived. Pope John Paul II, in a longer quote, addresses concupiscence again. When concupiscence gains mastery over the will, 
One can say it dominates the subjectivity of the person and stands at the basis of the will and of the possibility of choosing and deciding, by which, in virtue of self-decision or self-determination, the very way of existing in relation to another person is determined. This is a very thick, a very dense a very precise sentence, and so it's worth unpacking when concupiscence gains mastery over the will. The will, what we long for, what we desire. A concupiscent mastery over the will means that I desire what is sinful. Concupiscence, a tendency to sin. When concupiscence gains mastery over the will, one can say it dominates the subjectivity of the person. It does not dominate me in my being, but subjectively it dominates me because it directs the way I live, the way I act, what I want, and stands at the basis of the will and of the possibility of choosing and deciding. When we choose and decide according to a concupiscent will, we choose and decide poorly. We choose and decide for sin instead of for God, instead of for what is good and true and beautiful, in fact, not merely our latest whim, choosing and desiring by which, in virtue of self-decision or self-determination, two different ways of saying the same thing, but also different things, a self-decision, a decision I make, a self-determination, the use of free will. These are very intense terms the Pope is using, and he's using them intentionally. He men means what he says, and he's saying what he means. And he says what he says, and he means what he means, because Christ said what he said, and Christ means what he means. Blessed are the pure of heart. Whoever looks upon another with lust, with a disorder or desire, has already committed adultery. You shall not commit adultery. These are the words of Christ, who appeals to our hearts. These are the words of Pope John Paul II, the vicar of Christ, the successor of St. Peter, at the time he spoke these words. Choosing and deciding by which in virtue of self-decision or self-determination, the way of existing. So it's one thing for me to exist in my being, it's another thing for me to exist in this way, as a person conforming my will to what is good and true and beautiful, or as a person who does not conform myself that way, as a person who conforms my way of living to sinful ways, to disordered ways, to concupiscent ways, the way I exist in relation to another person, is determined according to my choices and their choices. If I choose well and they choose well, then we choose well and all is well. But if my choices, if my desires, if my actions are disordered and hers are too, trouble ensues. These are very significant truths John Paul has spoken. It's good for us to ponder them anew. And having said that, John Paul reminds us that if that is the case, and it is the case, it would seem, this allows the necessary insight to read well, to read rightly, from sacred scripture, the 23rd chapter of Sirach, verses 17 through 22, which he had read some time before. That passage, if you recall, addresses concupiscence, a disordered way of living. So we know it naturally. John Paul II, while he spoke these words as the Bishop of Rome, as the chief teacher in the mystical body of Christ on earth, he is also presenting them in an intelligible fashion which does not require supernatural faith. Having recognized the truth, he then 
points us back to Scripture, which confirms what he said already with his natural intelligence. His natural intelligence addressing the reality of what we call the Gospels, a book which can be read by anyone who can read, a book which can be studied by any who have the use of reason, but that John Paul was a man of faith, this aided his rational reflection in faith. And if we are believers, this too will aid our reflection on the inspired text. Pope John Paul II continues, saying, Concupiscence removes the intentional dimension of the reciprocal existence of man and woman from the personal perspectives of communion while are proper to their perennial and reciprocal attraction, reducing this attraction and, so to speak, driving it toward utilitarian dimensions, in whose sphere of influence one human being makes use of another human being, using her only to satisfy his own urges. Again, this is a longer quote, and this is a very dense passage, and so it's worthwhile for us to pay attention. Again, the Pope is addressing concupiscence, how it affects the interior dimension of the reciprocal existence of man and woman. It impacts the way we relate with each other, the man to the woman, the woman to the man. It impacts communion, the communion of persons for which we are made, which is a perennial call, which is a reciprocal call, all impacted, all disfigured, disordered by concupiscence, which is a consequence of the fall, which has impacted us all, for which Christ has come to save us, from which Christ has come to save us. When Pope John Paul addresses utilitarianism in this passage, it's not that he does not want us to be efficient in our dealings when we're trying to make a better mousetrap, but he does not want us to be utilitarian in our interpersonal relations, especially those in that covenant which is holy marriage. If one human being merely uses the other human being to satisfy his own urges, that is a disordered utilitarianism. For the other person is no mere object of desire, no mere object of a satisfaction for pleasure-seeking. The other person is a subject, another self. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. How true the golden rule is here, if anywhere. There are yet other jewels in this 41st catechesis. Man and woman, he created them a theology of the body, and they're worth considering as well. Pope John Paul II, in this catechesis, reminds us and insists and presumes that there is an objective dimension of human nature, that the human being is a specific reality, a specific being. And what is true of one human being, as a human being, qua human being, is true for all human beings. Our nature is the same. We are made to be chaste. Our nature is fallen. We are having a tendency to do evil. The technical term is concupiscence. There is an objective dimension of human nature. And part of the objective dimension of human nature is the spousal meaning of the body. The man is made for the woman. The woman is made for the man. And when the two become one flesh, 
Not always, but regularly, often enough. God gives the gift of life. The father and the mother, the husband and the wife, they contribute the body, and God contributes the soul. This is procreation. This is part of the objective dimension of human nature, and so too is the procreative finality that is proper to the objective dimension of human nature. And so Pope John Paul II does not mention here great evils against human generation, as Pope Paul VI calls contraceptive practices in his encyclical letter Humani Vitae. But for those with eyes to see, for those with ears to hear, you can recognize the reality of which John Paul II addresses in this catechesis. Part of the objective dimension of human nature is the procreative finality This is proper. This is a way of realizing the spousal nature of the body. The two shall become one flesh. Be fruitful and multiply. And there are those who would seek to separate the union of husband and wife from its procreative finality, who would seek sexual gratification, sexual pleasure, apart from the nuptial embrace, the embrace of husband and wife in holy marriage. These people are disregarding the objective dimension of human nature. And as Pope John Paul II does not specifically mention here prophylactics, contraceptives, he also does not mention homosexual practices, sodomy or what. But these things, too, are against the spousal meaning of the body. These things are contrary to the objective dimension of human nature, the complementarity of husband and wife, man and woman, So, too, Pope John Paul II, in this 41st Catechesis, mentions Manichaeanism. This is an ancient heresy which makes an opposition between body and soul, between matter and spirit. And there was a time before his conversion that St. Augustine suffered from this heresy. Pope John Paul II is not a Manichaean. Pope John Paul recognizes the goodness of creation, the human body included. He also recognizes the goodness of the will of those powers of the human soul to desire rightly, even as we struggle in the here and now after the fall to always will what is good and true and beautiful. By raising the issue of Manichaeanism, the Pope is warning us, don't make this false dialectic, don't make the false opposition. Beware that it's out there and steer your course straight. Pope John Paul II, in this 41st Catechesis, Man and Woman, He Created Them, a theology of the body focuses so often on our very existence, on our being, and he says we exist as persons, that we're not just objects, we're another self, and that's true of the other, and so we need to act accordingly, not treating one another as means to an end, in a utilitarian fashion, as if the body doesn't matter. That would be a new Manichaeanism, or a rehash of the same. Pope John Paul II has focused our attention on these things, not to relish in them, but in order to warn us of them and to remind us of the need we have for our Savior. And we have a Savior in Jesus, who has come to redeem us, to save us from ourselves, to save us from the fall and the disorders which are its consequence. Until next time, God bless you.